Hello? Hello? Hello everyone? Hello? Can everybody hear me okay? No? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello? Can everybody hear me okay? Excellent. Welcome. I knew this was going to be a busy session, but this is, this is definitely very busy. Uh, guys, I'm going to do a quick few housekeeping notes before I pass you over to our chair this morning. Uh, my name is Ronan, and my colleague Tiernan is here as well. If you have any questions, you can ask one of us. Um, so the first thing to note, the session itself. So this is session seven. This is libraries and publishers in the open science landscape. Pay, publish, or perish. So should you all be here? Yes? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So the fire exits. So if you move it to the left or right in the unlikely event of a fire alarm, the exit will just be to the left corner here, so just outside the door. But we'll direct you in, in that case. Um, the toilets and the wa water fountain. Again, if you pop out of either exit, head back down towards the main reception area, you'll have the toilets on the ground floor, and the water fountain is halfway down on the right-hand side. Okay. Um, the last thing to mention, what's next after this session so you will have a coffee break immediately following the session and that will happen in the usual spots that we had yesterday so again down around our section area and on the lower ground floor again if you have any questions just ask us in terms of lunch today lunch will take place in the dining hall which is across the uh, across the uh, main uh, foyer area but we will have staff that will direct you in that instance so without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to our chair, Hilda, who will take things from here. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, um, and welcome to what is promising to be a very interesting session. And um, to start off with already, uh, this morning, Astrid Soderberg told us all to come here because um, the first presentation by Lisa Olsen of the Stockholm University Library and National Library will be about the consequences of the um, Elsevier cancellation. So I know we are all looking very much forward to that. But that's not the only interesting presentation that we're going to uh, hear this morning at this first session. Um, I'm very pleased that we have uh, four presentations that are uh, very well connected. and. Uh, give us an opportunity to look at uh, new developments in uh, publishing and support by libraries and also think about new models, new um, initiatives that we can take. So um, I would be very pleased if we could um, uh, do a few quick questions after each presentation um, about that specific spe presentation but um, also leave some time at the end to uh, discuss each other the meaning of those four because after uh, Lisa Olsen will present we will hear more about the spring Compact agreement from uh, Dirk Pieper of Bielefeld University. We'll move on to the Open Library of Humanities uh, with Paolo Clemente Vega, and, and then we can see what libraries can do to um, uh, support um, not going uh, um, wrong with predatory publishing uh, from Jasmine Smith. So um, that's um, an 
a very good session to look forward to. And I would like to um, ask Lisa uh, as the first uh, presenter to tell us about uh, what's happening in Sweden. Um, this is a bit intimidating, but I'll try to manage. Uh, I am here to talk about the Swedish cancellation of the agreement with Elsevier last year and how it affected the Swedish researchers and the Swedish uh, uh, institutions. Should I? Is this better? No, may, I'll, I'll raise my voice. Uh, Bibsam is the Swedish library consortium that negotiates agreements uh, on behalf of, of Swedish higher education institutions and government agencies. In negotiations with Elsevier, Bibsam demanded a three-year agreement running from 2018 to 2020. Uh, they demanded open access to all articles published with Elsevier by authors affiliated with the the participating institutions in the consortium. They also demanded reading rights to Elsevier's Science Direct Freedom Collection, including Lancet and Cell Press, and a sustainable price model that enables the transition to open access. This is a d detailed timeline of the negotiation process up until and after the termination of the Swedish agreement. I thought I would mention a few important events on the timeline. The renegotiations with Elsevier started in June 2016. By the end of 2016, no agreement had been reached and uh, it was decided that the agreement would be prolonged for, uh, for one more year. By the end of 2017, still no new agreement uh, was in place and Bibsam decided to prolong the agreement month by month during 2018. In in the spring of 2018, Swedish vice chancellors met and discussed the option to either cancel or re renew the uh, agreement, and they supported a cancellation. Uh, they gave a cancellation their support, and the um, decision to cancel was made and Elsevier was notified of cancellation and then a press release came out uh, in the end of May and by the 1st of July the uh, agreement had terminated and Elsevier closed access uh, immediately as soon as the agreement was terminated. The news of the cancellation spread uh, rapidly all over the world, but what did the cancellation mean? It meant that the Swedish higher education institutions and the government agencies from July 1st, 2018 lacked access to material published after June 30th, 2018. So thanks to uh, post-terminal access, they had access to all of the materials published up until the uh, agreement ended. Who was affected? The cancellation affected end users at the 29 higher education institutes, uh, institutions and the uh, 15 government agencies that subscribed to Elsevier at the time of cancellation. We estimate that 
uh, the cancellation affects approximately 42,000 users, 36,000 uh, researchers at, and uh, 6,000 users at government agencies. In reality, however, far less than 6,000 government agency users actually use the, the services, so 42,000 is a high estimate. Elsevier is an important publisher, responsible for 38% of the Bibsum turnover in 2017, and the cancellation was likely to affect many researchers, as you just heard. And as you can understand from the lengthy process of negotiations, the decision to cancel was not an easy decision to make. Given that this was the first uh, cancellation of its kind in Sweden, the steering committee of Bibsum wanted to learn from the experience. They assigned a team to evaluate the consequences of the cancellation uh, regarding its effects on the end users, the participating institutions and the consortium as a whole. We gathered data on publications, on economy, media attention. We uh, collected information from uh, license managers in Sweden and in Denmark and Norway. And we contacted a fin financial analyst, but I thought my focus here would be on the two surveys we sent out to e-resource managers at participating institutions and end users. That is researchers, research students and users at government agencies. The results of these surveys were analyzed quantitatively, reporting descriptive statistics and some analysis conducted on, uh, to allow for comparisons between before and after cancellation and also between different research areas. There was also a large number of written answers uh, provided by users in response to the question, is there anything you would like to add? A third of the, or almost a third of the respondents chose to leave such answers. So we had 1,240 written responses to uh, analyze. We thought the material was quite rich, so they were thoroughly analyzed using content analysis to pro provide some additional information to the quantitative findings. We identified 2,820 meaningful units in these uh, uh, written answers, that, and they were categorized into codes, categories and themes and I will mention uh, some of these results but uh, the, uh, the these qualitative findings will be reported in full in a separate publication so they will be mentioned here but not uh, in, in full depth so a brief summary of the results of the survey sent out to the participating institutions 41 out of the 44 uh, participating institutions replied to our survey. The ones that declined were uh, government agencies, so all of the higher education institutions were included. 56% reported alterations in their internal work processes, but these alterations were minor. Uh, and all of the institutions pr provided information on the cancellations, cancell cancellation to their users. And 32 provided in, also provided information on uh, alternative access to their users. The e-resource managers reported that they were surprised to have had surprisingly few comments from end users. 18 of the for 41 institutions had uh, services 
for alternative access, and 39 of these reported having bought such services since the cancellation. We looked into interlibrary loans data uh, to see if we could find an increase in loans after cancellation, but uh, we didn't. They hadn't increased. There was no statistically significant increase when we compared the institution's average amount of borrowed articles per month before the cancellation and after the cancellation. So no increase in, in interlibrary loans. We also looked into the most frequently used alternative access service to see if the number of ordered articles had increased uh, before and after cancellations, and it hadn't. Among the institutions that had this, an alternative access service before the cancellation, uh, there was no statistically significant difference between how many articles they ordered on average per month before the cancellation and after cancellation. However, um, not all institutions had alternative access services prior to cancellation. So as some large institutions con uh, started and signed uh, alternative access service after cancellation, the total amount of articles ordered have increased. But this increase only entails smaller cost, costs for the institutions. So how have libraries coped with the cancellation? They've coped well. There were only minor increases in workload, there were no increases in interlibrary loans, and only minor increases in costs related to alternative access services. So before the cancellation, Swedish institutions spent more than 1 million euros per month on Elsevier material. The cost of cancellation from the perspective of these participating institutions uh, is marginal in comparison, really. So, if the cancellation continues and more uh, users are negatively affected, there might, things might change, but as of yet, the cancellation has entailed huge savings for the institutions. You might wonder what the institutions have done with the money they saved. Uh, we, they were allowed to provide multiple responses to this question. Uh, and 46% of the institutions said that they had reinvested in open access, which is interesting. 41% uh, said we made other reinvestments. 37% said we wait and save the money. 32% said the money is returned to the main organization. And 20% reported that they also put them to some other use. Now over to the results of the survey sent out to the end users. End users from all research areas took part in our survey. As previ previously mentioned, the, uh, we estimated the population affected by the cancellation to be approximately 42,000 users. 4,221 respondents uh, re replied to our open online questionnaire, indicating that there was a huge interest both in the cancellation and its evaluation. 85% of the respondents were researchers or research students, 7% were government agency users, and 5% were students. I failed to mention that students are, of course, also likely to be affected by the cancellation, but uh, we contacted the Swedish uh, 
National Union of Students, and they had not been made aware of any complaints from students. So students were included and invited to participate, but given less attention in the evaluation. 91% of the respondents knew of the cancellation prior to uh, responding to the survey. We don't know if this is because the information given by their institution was successful or if they were notified by the pop-up banner that Elsevier introduced after the cancellation, where they gave information on their perspective of the cancellation. 81% uh, reported that they had needed access to articles published by Elsevier that their institution did not uh, give access to since the cancellation. 29% lacked access to less than five articles, and 28% lacked access to more than 10 articles. And 15% didn't lack any articles at all. To investigate what users did to gain access to articles uh, they lacked, we asked them, what, did you access the article or, or articles in some other way? And since they were likely to have lacked access to more than one article, they could uh, give multiple answers. And 42% of the users reported that they had once or one or more, on one or more occasions given up the search for an inaccessible article. The, the ans written answers uh, indicate that sometimes they gave up entirely and sometimes they just look for an an, an accessible article to replace the inaccessible article with. So this means that Elsevier material is less read and probably less cited in the future if this would continue. Uh, at least once, 42% found access to an article online. At least once, they, 23% uh, used help from the library. At least once, they 22% con contacted the author and at least once to 22% contact a, co a colleague and other, we don't know what they did. Uh, then we wanted to know what those that found access online, what, where they had found access. And at least once, 45% of the researchers had gained access through ResearchGate. At least once, 24% uh, had gained access through SciHub. At least once, they didn't remember in 21% of the instances. <laughs> and uh, at least once, 15% had, had gone to the author webpage to find it. 75% um, did not have a plugin installed on their computer to search for open access publications. We asked them, how has the cancellation affected your research, work, or studies. And 54% say that the cancellation affected their work negatively or very negatively. 37% say that the cancellation has not affected their work in any direction, and 7% can't say. So the majority of the respondents are negatively affected, but uh, we find it surprising that 37% has not been affected in their research, work, or studies. This is surprising since the cost of Elsevier represents a large portion of the BIB sum turnover. So one would expect perhaps even more effects on their work. We also asked, this was the final question, uh, what is your stance on the cancellation of the Elsevier agreement? 
48% were negative and 38% were somewhat positive or positive. This question and the, previous, the question on the previous slide, if they were affected by the cancellation, uh, those two questions were positively correlated 0.7, where zero is no relationship at all and one is a perfect relationship. So it appeared that perhaps those less affected by the uh, cancellation were also more positive to the cancellation and those more affected are more negative to cancellation. At the same time, the relatively high uh, proportion of respondents that say don't know, can't say is an indication of some sort of uh, difficulty taking a stance in this question and we interpreted it as some sort of uh, ambivalence and when we studied the written answers we did find support that there was uh, an ambivalence in the, the written answers. Many said I understand, I support, but, and on the contrary, uh, other people said, I am so negatively affected by this cancellation, but, oh, three minutes, okay. <laughs> uh, um, sorry. One could also uh, look, to some extent you can, uh, the differences in opinion can be understood from looking at the different research areas. So depending on research area, how researchers from different fields replied to the question, what is your stance on the cancellation of the Elsevier agreement, is shown in this illustration. It's not super obvious, but the subject areas on the right are more negative than those further to, to their left. Uh, and the ovals represent statistically significant differences. So if you take health science and social care, the, the researchers in health science and social care do not differ in their stance on the cancellation of the Elsevier agreement from the researchers in, mental, in medicine and dental surgery, but they do differ from those in engineering and engineering only differs from health science and social care and humanities and theology. To our understanding, these differences are in line with the differences in research intensity in different research areas. R rapid consumption and production of research uh, makes the research area more immediately affected by a cancellation and it may also be that the coverage of Elsevier in certain areas make them more, the users there more vulnerable to cancellation. So the, the cost of cancellation for institutions was marginal. If the cost for them was marginal, it's hard or even impossible to assess the costs of uh, extra hours spent on searching for uh, articles and the consequences of uh, lowered ability to keep track of one's research area. This was true for some, not all researchers, but the ones that were affected were very affected by the cancellation. We also thought that perhaps we actually saw and found some proof of that the cancellation had influenced researcher behaviors. Previously, 60% had published with Elsevier, 44% had peer-reviewed with them, and 4% had been editors. 
We asked, how has the cancellation affected your will to publish in Elsevier journals? And 59% reported that their will to publish with them was, had been negatively or, or very ne negatively affected by the cancellation. Peer review was negatively or very negatively affected among 56% of the respondents. And the will to do editorial work for Elsevier journals was uh, lowered among 50% of the respondents. However, this question, um, it was understand, understood from the written replies that this question was hard to answer due to its wording. Some had stopped performing these activities in support of cancellation. Some had stopped doing them long ago. Others reported that they would not alter their behaviors. And yet others used peer review as a mean to get access to inaccessible articles. <laughs> Smart. Uh, some reported having chosen to publish open access over publishing with Elsevier because of the cancellation. Others were upset over having had to pay open access fees for in Elsevier journals due to the cancellation. They've actually felt that they were forced to publish open access to allow their Swedish colleagues to access their publications. So we started thinking, can cancellations influence publishing patterns? And we believe we have found proof among the Swedish researchers that they can. Sweden is a very small stakeholder, but international cancellation have potential to uh, substantially impact publication, publishing. Okay. Just a summary. What do users do when they lack access? They give up find the article online, use the library, or contact authors and colleagues. What do users think? 54% say it affected their work negatively, and 37% were not affected. 48% are negative to cancellation, 38% are positive, and 13 do not know. Who is negatively affected? Users in more research-intensive subject areas. And who opposes cancellation? Mainly those that are negatively affected, but there is some ambivalence. <coughs> and finally, uh, the overall conclusion is that the cancellation has affected users, but they disagree on the extent of how, how they are affected and how severely they are affected. The cancellation also has affected participating institutions, but to a smaller extent than participated. The cost of cancellation uh, is marginal compared to what Elsevier cost before cancellation. And finally, the cancellation has forced a discussion on open access on many levels in academia. The communication of information from libraries to researchers or even vice chancellors is generally not easy or straightforward. So this cancellation was very efficient in raising awareness uh, of negotiations of open access and of costs. Thank you. These are the people. David Prosser from Research Libraries UK. Thank you for that. That's brilliant. Um, I think all the evidence that we are getting now that the world still continues to turn post-cancellation is, 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 is great. A quick question about author attitudes. You say that people are now saying they're, they're less likely to want to publish with Elsevier. It's probably too early to tell, um, but is there any actual evidence yet that there are now fewer Swedish papers appearing in Elsevier journals? 
there were written replies indicating that so, uh, there was an editor that said that they had a difficulty finding reviewers and also that one editor had difficult had less submitted articles in their journal but i agree with you it's probably too early to say for sure I'm Kristina Horme from the National Library of Finland. So you mentioned that uh, at the moment the savings are quite uh, big uh, mm. after cancelling Elsevier. Uh, do you have or are you planning to have some kind of strategy to support uh, your institutions in, in sort of uh, using the saved money for, for future purposes? Mm. I don't know. Well, the, the Bibsan consortium negotiates open access agreements that uh, some of the institutions have chosen to participate in. It's it might be worth thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions at this time? Hello. You mentioned that 45% of the respondents in institutions invested uh, part of the savings in uh, open access. Do you have more information on what kind of use was it? Was it APCs? What kind of APCs? Was it other kind of investments? This would be quite interesting to know. Yeah. Some, some entered into the open access, uh, other open access agreements uh, negotiated by BIPLAM. Others created some uh, open access funds where researchers could uh, apply for funding for open access. I have more information, but at the top of my head, those are the two ones. Thank you. And I can use this for my own question, last question. <laughs> um, I was very much interested in the alternative methods. 42% uh, didn't even try, but do you think that if we as libraries would um, put up more automated alternative routes than they would be easily um, uh, making use of those alternative access and that would um, lower um, the negative uh, results? Yes, the, the, it was very evident that uh, the alternative access services provided today are not uh, to satisfaction. It's too slow. They, the ones, paper copies is for many useless. Electronic copies can be useful, but sometimes they lack the supplemental data. In, in certain areas, the supplemental data is just as important as the publication itself. Also, some areas want to order preprints, and preprints are not uh, available through these services. So. Anything we can do to improve those services and access alternatives is a good idea. Maybe something to spend the money on. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Lisa. Thank and you. I want to invite uh, Dirk Pieper is the next, as the next presenter, who's going to um, present on the Springer Agreement.
Yeah, good morning and uh, thank you very much for having me here. Um, I'm going to talk about the impact of Springer Compact Agreements on the way transformation. I will rely on data we have collected in our OpenAPC data set and I will frame my talk into some, let's say, strategic and uh, political papers we all know, probably. And uh, at the end of my presentation, I have some conclusions how to proceed with uh, transformative agreements in the future. Um, as I'm talking to experts, you probably all know the, the common or the actual um, policy papers or strategy papers, like, for example, the paper on the future of scholarly publishing and scholarly communication. I just snipped one um, uh, one sentence out of, of the um, overall report, which is very huge and very good. Uh, this uh, stresses on the enabling of cost and price control and on monitoring. Um, if you look, for example, at the EUI Big Deal Survey report, you find a similar sentence also in this um, report as well. And um, if you look at the Plan S principles and implementations, you also will find some sentences about uh, cost transparency, in this case to inform the market, to provide information for a market. And you will find some sentences about transformative agreements as well in the part three of the uh, implementation guidelines, which say that um, Plan S tends to uh, limitate the funding of transformative agreements as far as I understood until the end of 2024 and um, within uh, transformative agreements the share of OA content must gradually increase and the journals should have a clear commitment to transition to full open access in an agreed time frame. Um, what we can do with open APC to provide data in order to say okay um, publishers are following this route or not, I will show you in a minute. Um, what have we also about uh, transformative agreements? There is maybe the well-known registry provided by ASAC on transformative agreements. It's, as far as I know, not complete, but it's a good starting point to see what's going around in the world for transformative agreements. And within the open APC dataset, we have some data for transformative agreements uh, from the French EDP science agreement, um, some smaller portions from the Max Planck Society about um, IOP, RSC, Taylor and Francis, and by far the biggest portion of the data set is provided by several countries for Springer Compact. Um, yeah, what do we do with the data within OpenAPC? Um, OpenAPC, I I think the first presentation on OpenAPC I did at the LIBA conference in 2015, I think it was in London. And uh, we are currently funded by the Federal Ministry of Education and Research in Germany and we have a small working package within the Open Air project. And the basic goals as we started with OpenAPC were to release APC cost data and an open, open uh, database license and we wanted to implement transparent and usable reporting, and we wanted to allocate cost and bibliometric data to support open access transformation. These were the starting points for OpenAPC, and this is in a nutshell what we are doing. Uh, we rely on a few information which are provided by those institutions who provide data to OpenAPC, 
everything else, bibliographic data, identifiers, and so on, are automatically enriched by us by using nowadays uh, nearly fully automatic workflows. Um, the data set uh, developed, uh, I think, over time from 2015 to 2019. Uh, we have now more than 240 institutions which are provided data to the OpenAPC data set. Uh, we have more than 80,000 articles. Um, the amount of euros is more than 150 million, and the mean value per article is uh, currently 1,943 euro. Uh, you can find all the data, of course, uh, via GitHub. You can find the raw data there. Uh, you can make a copy, make your own analysis on this. You can see a visualization through a, three, through a tree map on the web. And you can do several things. You can filter data. Um, you can see where are going the expenditures and the money to publishers, to journals, and so on. And here's an example for France, which um, provided data uh, in the last year. And you can easily see where the majority of money goes from France to which journals, but you can also do it on publishers and so on. Um, so what is the relevance of OpenAPC, especially according to the um, papers I cited in the beginning of my talk? Um, OpenAPC allows the calculation of average costs over time. Uh, it allows to calculate costs for institutions, for publishers, for journals, uh, for hybrid journals, for fully open access. Um, it provides transparency on the distribution of published articles for institutions and you can compare prices and costs. And what does that mean? For example, I took here, not the Springer compact data, but the Wiley data. Uh, you can see here, I looked at this. Okay. Because I know we're having some issues with the, with the volume. So okay. I'm gonna try this as an alternative option. Okay. okay. So I can walk around like Steve Jobs did. <laughs> So just okay. Then click the wrong Okay. Yeah. Just bring it up and test it. See. See if that makes a difference. Okay. It's better. Okay. Uh, okay. Just some examples for the relevance of Open APC. Here, I looked at some slice of the data. I only looked at the hybrid. Um, of the articles in hybrid journals of Wiley. Uh, we have more than 4,000 um, articles within the data set from Wiley-Blackwell. And here I looked at a certain country at the United Kingdom because uh, the UK are the, um, by far the, the um, uh, most frequent um, data contributors for OpenAPC. So you can compare the um, cost development in the United Kingdom to the whole data set. You can also do it for journals, for example. So the Angewandte Chemie International Edition is the most frequent journal in the data set. You can compare the cost development for this single journal to the um, data set for Wiley Blackwell. And what you can do also is trying to um, compare and rank costs per article uh, when you look at certain price points or certain cost points. For example, this one is um, the estimated global cost for articles um, 
when you pay for open access publishing and for subscription fees as well. We all know this as double dipping. It's about 6,800 euros per article. Um, you can compare it, for example, to the global cost per article for reading. Uh, when you think about uh, the subscription fees the libraries are uh, paying for, which uh, nearly comes from the Max Planck white paper. And you can compare it, for example, to the Wiley deal in Germany. When you look at the PAR-free, uh, which in this case includes um, service fees and taxes. And you can compare it, for example, to costs of open access publishers, in this case for Copernicus, um, which for about one, uh, uh, 1,500 euro offers you a good quality for open access publications as well. So if you know this cost points or price points, you can make a decision on how to proceed in the future, right? Okay, now I'm coming to transformative agreements and Springer. And um, as I said, for Springer Compact, we have um, data, but without costs, because um, uh, it was agreed, I think some years ago, that uh, we only have um, diplomatic data within the OpenAPC data set, and those are the data providers. And um, in total, we have uh, more than uh, 27,000 articles um, in this time between 2015 and 2019. Um, they distribute over more than 2,000 journals. And the total number of journal articles in this time frame is more than 886,000. And the total number of open access articles, whether via Springer Compact or due to other agreements or to hybrid publishing is uh, more than 66,000. And the total number of Springer Compact agreements from these data providers is about 27,000. Okay, what does this mean? This means that the overall open access share in all Springer Compact journals is about, um, or is exactly 7%, 7.47%. And the Springer Compact agreements are responsible for nearly 40% of all the open access articles within the Springer Compact journals. So you can see that transformative agreements do have an effect when it comes to the increase of open access articles within a big journal portfolio. You can check all the data by yourself. Um, you can see on our website a portion for this data, which is called Springer Compact Coverage Analysis. And you can download the data in a CSV format or in a JSON format and can do your own analysis on this. What I was interested in, um, are there any journals which are or have an open access share which is above 50%, above or equal to 50%. And those are the journals I found, not so many, I have to say. And um, I found 21 different journal titles out of about 2,000, which reached open access shares above or equal to 50% in 2016, or in 2017, or in 2018. Um, probably, and this is my conclusion also from the data set, that the journals in the subject field of medicine will be the first one which can flip totally to open access, which means that they have a share of um, uh, open access article equal to or more than 50%. 
So in the next phase, um, I wanted to know what would have happened if um, there have been a deal, a deal Springer contract in Germany in place. Okay, three minutes. Um, as you know, I think Germany is, uh, if you look at the ranking of those countries who have the most frequent um, publications on journal articles in the world, then after China, United States, UK, I think Germany comes on, on the fourth um, position. And I wanted to know what would have happened for the open access shares if there had been a deal for Springer in Germany. Uh, what we did, we used Web of Science data and mapped those article data to all the German universities and academic institutions. And what I found was that um, the number of journal titles would increase up to 53 different journals. And here's the list as well. And um, you can see also there that a lot of medicine titles would be the first ones which uh, could maybe flip into open access. Okay, my conclusion. Um, I would say because of the huge divergence of articles in Springer Compact Journals, there's a need for more transformative agreements in frequently publishing countries. As I said before, there are not so many frequently publishing countries. It means that if we don't succeed in having the US or China in, into uh, transformative agreements with Springer Compact, then the overall open access share in articles wouldn't increase so much. Um, and I would say uh, to measure the cost effectiveness of transformative agreements, we need cost data per articles. And this is maybe the most important takeaway message from me because um, on the one side, funders need real cost information to evaluate their strategies and to develop cost models on a national level. The universities need cost data from transformative agreements because they have to develop new models to distribute the expenditures, transforming the expenditures from subscription to publication-based um, figures. And this is what I want to say is that transformative agreements would probably change only a small number of journals completely to open access until 2024, which marks the end of Plan S, funding transformative agreements. Yeah, my final slide or my final remark, um, I'm going back to the Amsterdam Call for Action in Open Science in 2016, which uh, clearly indicates this case that we have to, if we look at cost effectiveness, if we look at efficiency, we have to have um, insights into costs and conditions. And uh, yeah, this is my last remark on it. And thank you very much. And especially thank you to all the data providers to open APC. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dirk. And I understand it correctly that all the data that you're collecting is openly available sure. uh, through the yeah. GitHub. Uh, yeah. oh, that's in interesting to work with. Um, any questions for Dirk? Katrine McCallum, uh, Director of Open Science in Darwin, that was great data, really interesting data. The, um, mm -hmm. What, in your opinion, is the percentage at which publishers are likely to flip? I mean, it's probably not 50%. 
No. What, what, what do you think that is? And, and I, I have another question, if I might. Is, mm. is you, you talk about uh, costs and article costs, um, and I'm I'm a bit confused. In sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah. In terms of of, of costs, how do you distinguish between? costs and, and price because my understanding mm. is what you're doing is actually wanting the the value of the price that was paid yeah. by it, the transaction yeah. rather than the cost yeah no if okay. you see what i mean because uh, because okay. I, I i think mm. that that there there is a, a different i think price yeah. is, is the really important one no. okay um first part of the question um i'm not in the position to decide when is a journal flipped or not or what does publisher do or what does uh, or what negotiation people do right I mean we only provide the figures and those people who are doing contracts and negotiating have to think about what to do with the figures um, if I would have seen a journal portfolio and there are certain journals which have a small which have a huge open access share in articles I would say there must be a cost decrease because um, there are a lot of portion of these articles are open access anyway. Um, when it comes to prices and costs, um, from an economical point of view, um, prices are realized, or other way around, costs are realized prices on the market, right? And I'm looking at costs because um, I'm coming from an institution and I want to say, what do I have to pay for a contract or for an article, which includes taxes, which includes service fees, which includes discounts as well. And those figures sometimes um, are different from prices, as we all know. May I, may I respond? I, I, I completely agree about costs. I, I think there's this confusion, certainly in my mind, that <clears throat> when when, for example, Plan S initially asked for a breakdown mm. of costs, yeah. what they were doing was, what are all your overheads? How does, you know, what goes into which bit? But that's a different, what you're saying is, what mm. is the fee that was actually paid? Mm. That, that's the cost, yeah. 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 which is the important one. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Any other questions? Okay. Thank you very much. And, Thank you. Uh, let's move on to another way of spending our money. Um, and look at the amenities as an example of how we could do that. So the option of you have to speak very close and very loud. Or you can use this. Yeah, I can always try to try this yeah, and see. And if not, I give a couple of minutes and then maybe. Yep. So just speak close and loud. <laughs> so hello, hello everyone. I'm Paula Clemente. I'm the marketing officer for the Open Library of Humanities. And I'm here to talk about the Open Library of Humanities and open access without uh, article processing charges. So first, let me introduce the Open Library of Humanities. The Open Library of Humanities is a scholar-led project that facilitates open access publishing by removing all author charges. We support academic journals uh, from across the humanities disciplines, as well as hosting our own multidisciplinary journal, the Open Library of Humanities, the same name as the platform. 
At the moment, we publish a total of 26 articles. So we are part of a um, growing global community of not-for-profit um, publishers that explore different business models and innovative approaches to um, open publishing. We are funded by an international library uh, consortium uh, of more than 200 institutions from all over the world, where each member pays an annual fee according to the country and the size of the institution. And we are also funded by the Andrew Mello Foundation. So our basic idea is that research organizations and libraries make a relatively small contribution that covers the cost of uh, running a publication platform on which peer-reviewed um, scholarly journals can, be, can then be published as open access. So now I will try to give an overview of the current um, um, oh, uh, academic publishing landscape. So um, the current academic, academic publishing uh, landscape is dominated by an hybrid environment which is made of two predominant economic models. So on one hand, we have uh, gold uh, open access with uh, the implementation of author processing charges, APCs. As you can see here, also the average cost for publication, as estimated by the Finch report, is something between 1,500 and 2,000. And then, on the other hand, we have the subscription model in which if you don't pay, you don't have access to uh, that content. So in the last 30 years or so, since 1986, subscription costs for um, academic journal has risen by 300% above inflation. And this is all in addition to uh, exponentially, exponentially increased research output over this period with more and more academics producing and publishing research. This has triggered the, um, the, the serial crisis and therefore the inability of library budget to keep pace with the prices set by publishers. I think this image illustrates pretty well the current situation I'm talking about. So researchers, there, which are paid by universities funded by taxpayer money, are giving away their work for free to, in the subscription system to publishers that then sell back the work of these academics to the same institutions that are employing them and therefore paying them a salary. This, in the case of APC-based gold open access, continues to place the burden of having to pay for the cost of publications to authors and institutions. Then, if we take into account what I just said before about the mostly high cost for APCs and the subscriptions and the fact that uh, more and more people are producing research and publishing that research, while the budget for university libraries continue to decrease, then we have a real problem. This is all happening at the same time that commercial publishers such as Elsevier continue to have a profit margin of 40%. 
So it is within this context that scholar-led open access initiative emerged. They emerged as a result of a frustration and a critical attitude uh, towards the ongoing commercialization of uh, publishing. Alongside a growing awareness among the scholars of open access publishing options. It was also created as a way of survival. Take, for instance, uh, the example of the humanities with the Open Library of Humanities, or uh, in the Global South uh, with, for example, in Latin America, Cielo Redalic, or the recently launched Amelica. So therefore, it's emerged as a matter of sustainability. And I think that the best way to illustrate the different business models for academic publishing and see how they sit within uh, institutions and academics is just think about an, in a, an, about an imaginary situation. So for instance, imagine that there are 100 people in a room and they each have uh, $10. And that the speakers uh, that is delivering the toll is speaking for free. And that the venue needs uh, 50 pounds to cover uh, for its staff cost. And that there, there are uh, 40 talks per year. So what happens if we have the subscription logic? So with the subscription model, if you don't pay, you don't have access to the talk in this imaginary situation or to the publication in the real life. What is the problem here? Well, the problem is that the accessibility to the event or to the publication is put behind a paywall that not everybody can afford and that not everybody can read. And then what happened with the APC model? The APC model concentrates costs on a specific part of the system, whether the academic or the institution but the money is not necessarily there, uh, available at those places. So take, for example, the humanities or at research-concentrated institutions. And then, it is not too much, there is not too much difference in terms of cost uh, for academic institutions, whether they are paying for subscription costs or for APC costs. What happens here is that it's the speaker, the speaker with, uh, who has to pay the full fee. But the problem is that the speaker only has 10 pounds. And this is a problem with the humanities, for example. So how do we solve that? Even though, at the end, the good thing about that is that through the payment of APCs, the article can be made available online for everybody to read. But if institutions cannot afford to pay the inflated uh, prices set by publishers, what is the point? So this is the third way, and it's the way we have with the uh, Open Library of Humanities, with it, which is the uh, open access with the uh, consortial logic. And this may solve this funding problem, uh, and this is, the cons uh, um, in, this is a consortial model in which institutions pull together, pull together their resources and unite together in order to facilitate open access uh, publishing without the need to share authors or readers. So what happens here is that if five people attend each talk and pay, for example, 10 pounds each, and then they can let anybody, any, anybody else attend for free, and with the money they all have, they can, everybody can at least hear 50% of their talks. 
So as I said before, the APCs, uh, the APC logic and the humanities really doesn't work well. Why? Because the humanities is so poorly funded, uh, and the social sciences as well, are so poorly funded by comparison to other academic disciplines. And these APCs will have the effect of shutting down scholarly communication, uh, particularly for early career researchers, postgraduate, independent scholars, and academics at less research institutions or institutions in the global south. And this is why the distribution of the economics is the most important factor for academic publishing in the humanities and in other places like um, the south of Europe and Latin America, uh, Africa, or Asia. So, uh, the conceptual funding model, uh, as, as illustrated previously, solved this funding problem. Here, we have many libraries uniting together and paying a relatively small, um, relatively uh, a small amount of money, each one to cover for the cost of publication, while making the material available to everybody to read on the internet. There are also ways in which you can give certain subscriptions. Uh, we have the library partnership subsidy, which is a way in which we can give certain subscription benefits to institutions. What we do, for instance, as I said before, is to give a governance stance to our library, um, International Library Consortium, where they can vote every year for the inclusion of new journals and for the price uh, of their membership in increase as well. We are supported by over 200 institutions from all over the world. Um, the fees that depends on the country and the size of institutions range something between 700 pounds and 2,200 pounds a year. Uh, we publish 26 journals in the humanities and social science as well. Uh, we have journals in uh, literature, in arts, in history, in film studies, in media, in linguistics, uh, in linguistics, for example, we do also work with linguistics in open access to flip journals from subscription mechanism to open access systems. And the most prominent of those was the move of the editorial board from Lingua uh, to Glossa, a new journal that started with us and that published something like 100 articles a year, something like that. So what can I do to support, what you can do to support the Open Library of Humanities? Well, if you are a member of the Open Library of Humanities, you can always um, refer to a new member and get a mutual 10% discount in your next year membership. You can also shift your perspective, if you are not a member, you can shift your perspectives from subscriptions, APCs, and big deals, and join the Open Library of Humanities. And you can also um, stand up for the humanities and become an advocate. We launched uh, um, some months ago, in January, the Advocacy Network, which is a new space where open access early career scholars, editors, librarians, or information and specialists can have an info conversation, share, inf share information, and support each other as well. 
So what we can do to support you? So we launched in 2018 an initiative called Empower, which is a marketing initiative to um, design it to strengthen the humanities open access with blog posts, social media conversation, open access resources, and, an advo and the advocacy network I, I mentioned before. So the core of Empower can be summarized in one sentence. The best way to promote the open library of humanities is to strengthen the humanities open access in which operates. And as part of Empower, we have, uh, we have created a resources section on our website in which we have multilingual content that has been translated into French, Spanish, Italian, uh, German, and Russian. Not sure if I'm missing anything, but I think it's five languages so far. And there you can find posters, uh, infographic, uh, the facts uh, section, which is, I think is really useful to get a taste of how uh, our business model works and the f benefits as well. And we also have a glossary of open access terms and yeah, a growing list of other tools. Any new ideas are always welcome. And then uh, as part of the Empower initiative as well, we normally commission uh, editors from our special collections, um, editors from our journals as well, or people involved in open access initiative. For example, we recently released a interview with the director of Amelica, this open science infrastructure that was launched in Latin America some months ago, and with um, developers of GenaWeb, which is the platform we use to uh, publish some of our journals. And we invite them to uh, write and say for us or uh, do an interview. And then as part of um, this uh, blog post series, we organize uh, Twitter chats as a way to uh, continue the conversation raising our blog post. And you can see the archive of all our past uh, Twitter chats on our Wacolec collection. And I'm finishing now. And yeah, here is our poster. I have taken some of these posters with me. I am staying at this, uh, the um, campus accommodation, so if you want a copy, just let me know and I will bring it to you. And yeah, power to the librarian, power to the scholar, power to the humanities. Thank you so much. In that case, I have one. Um, what's the success at this uh, time? Um, how many libraries have bought into the Open Library? Yeah, we have like 230, something like that. And then we also have so many libraries joining us through, uh, cons uh, through our consortial offer, which is a way in which uh, they can join us collectively and save some money as well. So everything is working really well. <laughs> Sounds very promising. Thank you very much. Oh, there's a question. Thanks, yeah. Um, Olaf Siegert from Germany, from ZBW, German National Library of Economics. I have one question. From an editor's point of view of one of these 27 journals, um, um, how much uh, money does each journal receive per year? I mean, how do, do you calculate the costs? Well, I'm more a marketing officer than I'm not really like into economics, but the thing is that some of our journals 
For example, uh, the journals, we have some journals with Ubiquity Press. We have a partnership with them. And, and we pay for the APCs, of course. And then we have some journals that are supported by our platform as well. So I really, I really can, can provide you that information. But if you want, I can check with Martin, who is the director, and then I can get back to you by email. Okay, thank you very much, and uh, we'll move on to um, the next presentation. Um, I think you're going to tell us of what we're not supposed to give our money to instead of <laughs> what we are doing. Uh, Jasmine will uh, uh, talk about the um, uh, sorry, predatory <laughs> the predatory publishers, of course. Okay, thank you. Can you all hear me? Okay, thank you very much for the introduction. Thanks for having me. Um, I will to talk today we'll talk about predatory publishing and what research libraries actually can do with this phenomenon or how they can treat this phenomenon to um, save money or to protect their money and protect their researchers. So um, I think, first of all, we have to start with a, a short definition. What is predatory publishing about? Well, uh, this is a term to describe the activities of publishers and of journals that are charging article processing charges, but actually do not deliver anything for their money. Uh, they do not provide proper services, which means that they hardly do any peer review and that they hardly do any editorial processing, which means that they just publish the articles as they get in. Um, and in general, we can say that the content of the articles, the advancement of science, um, and the quality assurance are not in the center of the focus of predatory publishers or predatory journals. It's just there to make money and to exploit the APC system. Uh, what I brought here is two examples um, of, of journals which are a bit suspicious. The first example is from the American Journal of Applied Mathematics. Uh, this journal published an article called The Mathematical Proof of the Law of Karma. And when you go through this article, you will see immediately there's no, it doesn't stand on solid grounds of, of research methods or anything. Um, although the author uh, pretends that uh, peer review uh, has taken place, but again, when you go through the article, uh, you will immediately see, see this is not science. And my second example is from the uh, International Journal of English Language, Literature, and Humanities, uh, who had a call uh, for papers some while ago, and they asked for submission. 
uh, on Christmas Eve. You could pen in your articles by Christmas Eve. Go celebrating Christmas, and after Christmas, your article gets published. But the question is here, who are the poor guys who are doing the peer review while you are celebrating Christmas? Maybe there will be no peer review. Uh, so, um, the business practices, um, as you can see, uh, maybe it occurred or you already received uh, such emails. First of all, they do aggressive emailing. Um, I receive one or two emails per week. There are renowned researchers who, e who even receive up to 20 or 30 emails per week. And what they are doing, they are asking for submission of articles or they are asking to join the editorial board. Uh, another thing is that journal titles resemble um, already existing journals. We call that journal hijacking because there's a likelihood of confusion. And actually, at ZBMED, we are also publishing uh, journals, and one of our journals got hijacked as well. So it's, it's actually really a problem. Um, Predatory journals conceal information, um, for example, about APCs, about the length of the peer review process. Um, the editorial board is quite often made up, uh, or it has a certain bias, or actually they put names on the editorial board uh, without, uh, without that the uh, original researcher or the original person actually knows about that. And when they are asked to take off the names from the website, they refuse to do it or just ignore uh, the requests. Um, they often set up or put on their website indicators um, that resemble the journal impact factor. But when you look the journal up in the JCR, Journal Citation Reports, you will realize that the journal isn't uh, in the, uh, doesn't really have an official uh, impact factor. And uh, as we can already see from the examples, there's fast publication, so there's no time for rigorous peer review. Um, so the question is, why can this all be considered as a serious problem? Actually, it's a waste of public money. And for the researchers, it is a waste of time. Because when they fall prey, in case they fall prey, they wasted so much time because actually it takes them several weeks, even up to months, to write such an article. And they no longer can use this article to build up their career. So it's again, it's always a waste of time. Um, to my mind, the most important issue is that the results were not subject to proper peer review. And they are out there, they get published. And especially in the field of medicine, it causes a problem if the uh, results are not, are not properly peer reviewed and lay people cannot decide or distinguish peer-reviewed results from not peer-reviewed results. Another problem is that dishonest uh, authors get an opportunity to publish. Um, in general, the um, uh, predatory publishing is also used to discredit the open access movement. There are certain people who say, uh, because there is predatory publishing, the whole open access movement is crap. But yeah, okay, <laughs> make up your mind if this can be true. Um, but actually, what we can see is that the publish or perish paradigm 
in science and a questionable reward system in certain countries leads such to such practice. And to give another evidence uh, that this is a serious problem, uh, there's an analysis by Shannon Björk um, looking at uh, the publication landscape in 2014, and they found out that there are 8,000 questionable journals with more than 400,000 articles published. So, but why is this an issue um, for libraries as well, research libraries as well, and not only for the researchers? Well, I personally think that research libraries have a long-term ex experience in curating content, and I'm quite sure, sure that you all will agree. Uh, but secondly, it's also a question of self-concept. When research libraries, we as research libraries, consider ourselves as partners of the researchers, why not uh, provide our expertise to support the researchers and make sure that they won't fall prey? It's a chance to foster the relationship or strengthen uh, the partnership with researchers, and libraries also should have a professional interest that those journals do not creep in their library catalogs and get an opportunity to spread their content. And um, there are also libraries who have, uh, which have institutional funds, and they actually need to check before giving APC uh, or give money for APCs before. Um, 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 yeah, they have to decide on whether money is uh, taken to pay APCs and they have to have a closer look at the journals as well. In general, we can say, yes, it should be part of the student's education to tackle such phenomenons. But in the end, uh, we as libraries have a self-interest as well. So what are actually the approaches to tackle um, this problem uh, or this phenomenon predatory publishing? First of all, it's blacklist. Um, the, the most famous blacklist is uh, by Jeffrey Beale, um, and it's called Beale's List. Um, uh, Jeffrey Beale was also the first person who coined the term predatory publishing. Uh, the Beale's List is now offline, but there is, uh, you all know there are web archives, so it's still able, you are still able to access uh, the list, but there's also an anonymous continuation uh, which is called uh, predatoryjournals.com. Um, and there's also a subscription database uh, which you can sus subscribe to, and uh, it is uh, done by Cables International who have on subscription basis a blacklist and a whitelist. So, what is the advantage of the blacklist approach? it's easy to apply. You just simply look up the list and then you get the information you need. The disadvantage of blacklist, to my mind, is that um, journals maybe do not lose the label of being a predatory one, although they are, um, or they, although their attentions are good, but they are not that professional. Uh, so there's a huge gray zone, and I will uh, dive into that uh, in, in some slides. Um, and it's debatable uh, how can one trust an anonymous providers, such as uh, Stop Predatory Publishing, and it's also debatable whether we as librarians should pay uh, subscription fees for a blacklist database. So maybe we can discuss that later. 
Second approach is the whitelist approach. The most famous one is the directory of open access journals. I'm quite sure that you are familiar with this database. Uh, but there's also subject-specific uh, journal lists or rankings. Um, the advantage, again, is here it's easy to apply. And the disadvantage is that um, these lists are never complete. So they somehow penalize journals that are new to the market. Um, third approach is neutral lists of databases, actually databases, platforms, or the like, which are set up for other purposes. For example, a quality open access market is a platform which collects information about open access journals, both pure and hybrid. And these can be used to consult, uh, to, to search for whether a journal is predatory or not as well. And there are also lists with journals that are indexed in discovery uh, systems, such as PubMed Central, Web of Science, or Scopus. The advantage is um, there's neutral information collected for other purposes. There's no blacklisting, whitelisting. The disadvantage is, um, again, those lists do not contain all the journals. With quality open access market, the problem is that the depth of information for each journal varies. And the disadvantage with PubMed Central, Web of Science, and Scopus is that there are some, there's some evidence that a slight amount of, small amount of journals already creeped into these databases as well. So in the end, with regard to these uh, two, uh, two approaches, blacklists, whitelists, neutral lists, you have to keep in mind that there's a huge gray zone. Um, there are journals with clear intentions to cheat, but there are also other uh, uh, journals that have proper pretend, uh, uh, intentions, but they are not yet familiar with the common business practices. And the key question is how to identify predatory journals without penalizing others. Um, what I, uh, uh, the figure here is from a publication, from a comparison made by uh, Swiss, uh, colleagues and what they did is they compared blacklists and whitelists and what they found out is that there are journals that appear on blacklists and whitelists as well and there's also a problem with the overlap of, of certain whitelists actually they overlap not that much um, so I'm very much in favor of uh, another approach which is, which is the list of criteria there are awareness initiatives with, which collect criteria. One example is think, check, and submit. And also uh, criteria collected by learned societies and other research communities. Um, yeah, and what they are doing is list of criteria usually focus on the transparency with regard to business practices. So they look at um, the length of period review, for example, or APCs, the impression of professionalism, and the trustworthiness of information. And the advantage is that each criterion can be weighted. Um, the advantage is that uh, a list can be adjusted to uh, subject areas. The disadvantage is there's much more workload than using one of the other approaches. And with think, check, and submit, the problem is that the list of criteria is very short. And especially uh, researchers have to need to have a certain grade of experience. 
when tackling with that. Um, when you collected uh, the, your list of criteria, criteria, what to do next? There's a suggestion by the journal evaluation tool uh, from librarians from the US who just listed the criteria and had a schema uh, how to score the several uh, uh, criteria and then come to a conclusion. And we had that we met also uh, tackled this problems, work with list of criteria, and we conducted a workshop in Germany uh, in December 2018 together with uh, several librarians and uh, people who are responsible for, for open access in their institution. And the lessons learned from that was that uh, you always have to need to decide which criterion, uh, the criteria, for which purpose the criterion should be used to. Is it to uh, identify reputable journals or is it to detect questionable ones? Um, blacklist and whitelist should be just one criterion. Uh, you can divide criteria into weak and strong criteria. The weak ones, uh, here you need several criteria to get a picture. For strong ones, it's usually a strong indicator or good indicator quite, quite clearly, whether a journal is reputable or questionable. Um, it always depends on the subject area. When it comes to indexing, it's a good idea to, to, to build a kind of knowledge base to document each case, which uh, criteria you applied, etc. Um, and when you do consultation uh, to, to uh, uh, researchers, it's always good also to have a documentation, but leave the final decision to the researchers. So what can we do um, when dealing, uh, what are the initiatives we can take? What are the services we can offer? Uh, here's an example from the, from the University of Graz, who uh, launched a kind of awareness campaign. Uh, one part of this awareness campaign was uh, producing um, um, YouTube videos, uh, but actually the awareness campaigns, campaign contains much more. Um, you, maybe you can have a look at that um, to get, get some inspiration. And uh, we at ZB might have an FIQ to deal with this issue. We are offering personal advice. We have a workshop. We address this issue in doc uh, doctoral students' courses. And in general, our target groups are researchers and information disseminators, such as librarians as well. And now I come to an end. Um, if this is all too much, what can you do um, as a kind of minimum? Um, yeah, list uh, at least a, a selection of criteria, provide some information just to rear the awareness among your researchers, um, and uh, talk to faculty members, for example, again, to rear awareness and to protect your researchers at your institution. Maybe during the discussion you have further suggestions, but thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Desmond. I know that we're approaching coffee, but um, it would be nice to have a few minutes um, only for the last questions for Desmond. I'm afraid the general discussion, um, I don't think you'll will wait for coffee that long. So we'll move the general discussion to another occasion, or please approach the speakers. But any questions uh, for Jasmine about this very interesting presentation over there? 
Hello. Uh, that's, thank you very much. Yeah. Fine. Uh, Chris Moravsky from F1000. There's been great presentation, really great presentation. Uh, I think the, the, the major question I might have was, did you study to some extent the awareness level of academics? Because basically, that's what it comes up to. They should normally, they, they normally evaluate where they publish, so they should know what they are dealing with. So uh, what's the geographic spread of the usage of those predatory journals? I, I know that there are some, some authors from Europe as well, and from the States. So how far researchers are really aware of what they are doing? They are not, or uh, yeah, basically that's, that's the question. Yeah, uh, as we can see from the literature, uh, mainly um, uh, those uh, research from no income countries for prey. But actually, there are also uh, uh, researchers in the US, in the uh, uh, in European countries as well. And it's always the same question I ask myself: How can this happen? Usually, you are not alone as a researcher. You have a research group and tackle these issues. Maybe you talk to your colleagues about your next publication. But fact is, there are some, actually some researchers who, uh, researchers who fall prey. But we can also see uh, from the discussion we had in Germany last year that it's mostly single authors or only uh, authors fall prey just for one time. So they make a bad, bad experience, and after that, uh, they are aware of this issue. Um, yeah, but, but in other countries, uh, uh, there are, as I said on one of the slides, uh, problematic uh, reward <coughs> systems, and they actually get somehow support even for these articles or using this as a publication venue. This last question over here. Thank you. David Prosser from Research Libraries UK. This may be more of a debate issue, but to be honest, and this may just be me and a personal view, I think we make far too much of a fuss about the term predatory journals. I think that all of the problems that you listed can apply to subscription journals as well. You talked about people, uh, lay people misunderstanding uh, medical results and this being a problem. There is a paper that was published by a UK researcher called Andrew Wakefield, which was published in The Lancet, which was peer-reviewed, which was talking about the NMR vaccine, and people are now dying because of, of that. And it was a terrible paper, and it's now been retracted. So all of those pro problems are problems that um, exist in the subscription mo model. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the current model, I think that what we're doing is that we're comparing some open access journals with some platonic ideal of what subscription journals ought to be like, and that's just, I don't think it's realistic. So, I'm sorry, that's just, I, I, I think that we're also wasting money, you're talking about wasting money, we're also wasting money on some subscription journals which are very poor quality and very low quality, and which have their papers retracted at a very high level. But, sorry, that's just well, me. in the end you're right. Yeah, there is some, there are several itch issues about subscription uh, journals, about the uh, peer review system in general, but there is an issue about predatory journals and researchers falling prey, uh, and uh, we have to tackle that. So let's not call them predatory journals anymore, and then people won't fall prey. We heard this morning about um, institutions signing up to DORA and the idea that we treat the research 
on its own merits and not where it's published. So wouldn't that solve the problem? <laughs> Thank you very much. It, it's a shame to end right here yeah. with uh, having this discussion started. Uh, anyone for a last reaction, reaction to this? Or I see everybody already grabbing their bag and going for coffee. So let's discuss this later. Thank you very much. saying that it's mostly individual authors who normally play get, get cut um, into this yeah it's, it's kind of private researchers yeah. or um, old professors yeah, to a okay. certain extent or uh, practitioners in the field of medicine no, yeah, that might be, uh, that might, might be uh, the case um, if you're interested well just know the research just, yeah but it's only in German because uh, we had a huge debate last year in summer um, and it was said that so many uh, German researchers were affected but in the end somebody took a closer look at the, uh, at the data and he found out just that almost a single that they just play for one time and uh, actually only few really use that uh, as a publication strategy uh, in Germany. Because uh, I, I used to work for uh, for an editorial service for authors, and there's been questions coming from Russia. How much we have to pay you in order to get published in the Web of Science Journal? Yeah. So they were prepared to pay even, even for a normal subscription, because they are evaluated on the on on the pub publication only basis. Yeah. So if yeah. they publish in the so-called Web of Science Journal, yeah. it's good for them. So sometimes in countries like Russia, I think China as well, they create especially like, like conferences yeah. just for them. So they get published in the conference proceedings and then, then they are fine. But it's basically the, the, the fault is not with the journals, the fault is with the evaluation systems. Yeah, to and, a and the colleague here, he, has, he was right that if we evaluate them on the level of yeah. Article, it's it's not a big issue if if Edison or uh, Einstein publish in one of those journals, it shouldn't affect anybody. Yeah, but we, we are actually we are discussing this issue for 10, 15, 20 years, and yeah. nothing ever happened. So okay. And that is true that that mm -hmm. even the, the, the regular subscription journals sometimes are on the quality level. As well, yeah. So it's, it's probably more because they, they say that it was a problem created with open answer journals. No, it, be, it became more visible. The issue rather. Yeah, but, but, but actually uh, they are exploiting the ABC really. Because it's easier yeah. to get money, because yeah. they get money yeah. directly from the author yeah. and not from the subscription yeah. system. Yeah. So it's easier to exploit, yeah. but it's also more visible. 
Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're reviewing invisible yeah. and anonymous. Or... Yeah. Yeah. You're right to a certain extent. But it's just it's, it's, it's a it's a kind of piece of research. Uh, well, research basically what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Um, are you going to publish something about it in the portal? I'm not that sure about that because I just wrote about you are the editor, right? Are you yeah. the editor? I, I'm, uh, I'm the editor for uh, Liberal yes, Portal. Uh, because I just wrote an article about this issue in a German uh, journal. Oh, you have published something that's in... Well, that yeah, I am a bit afraid to, to plagiarize myself. Of course. No, I understand. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, also, as, 